from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, no matter who prevails in November, the next president will inherit an economy in shambles, with the latest jobs report showing the largest number of unemployment claims since August. President Trump has been vague about his economic plan, but vows to cut taxes for the middle class, impose tariffs on companies that move abroad, and to repeal Obamacare. Joe Biden has proposed raising taxes on those earning more than $400,000 per year, expanding subsidies for health coverage under the Affordable Care Act, and a $2 trillion plan to combat climate change. We learn more about their plans with Jim Tankersley, who covers economic and tax policy for The New York Times and the prospects for more federal aid. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. economy is teetering with new rounds of layoffs and the lack of more federal aid. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said yesterday that an economic stimulus deal must be struck by tomorrow in order for Congress to pass it by Election Day. President Trump has gone back and forth on the stimulus and been vague about his broader economic plan, though he has denounced Joe Biden's plan to raise taxes on the rich and on corporations. Here to help us understand the nation's challenges and the latest economic news is Jim Tankersley. He covers the economy and tax policy for The New York Times, and his new book is The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim Tankersley. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start, if I could, with the news from Sunday that Speaker Pelosi has set this deadline of tomorrow to reach a deal with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin on a coronavirus stimulus deal by Election Day. I mean, how important is this next round of relief, especially to the millions out of work and facing dire straits, but also to just the U.S.'s economic recovery? I think it's really important. We have... um a recovery that is certainly progressing, but kind of in, in less and less uh, positive uh, steps as the months go on. We had a, a rapid rebound from a rapid recession uh, at the end of the spring, start of the summer. And that's just sort of tapered off uh, to the point now where job growth is slowing or has stalled out in a lot of places. Um, and a lot of and there's, there's still more than 10 million Americans who are unemployed. Uh, and and they are running out of money. They've been they saved some money from the additional unemployment benefits that they were given uh, from the first big round of stimulus that Congress passed back in March. Um, but the what the data show us is that uh, they are they're running out of money. They're running out of savings. They don't have additional help right now. They don't have great job prospects because. We are in an economy where the, the spread of a pandemic is dictating a lot of economic activity, and that's not getting better right now. And so um, from an individual standpoint, I think there are a lot of people and a lot of small business owners who could have a kind of make or break next few months in terms of whether they lose their homes or their businesses, um, uh, get, get evicted uh, or, or have to shut down. Um, and from a broad economic standpoint, it's sort of the difference between uh, setting ourselves up for rapid rebounding growth as soon as the virus is uh, completely tamed with a, with a vaccine or otherwise, um, or uh, maybe putting ourselves in a position where we've incurred some more um, deep economic damage that will hold back growth even once it's safe to resume normal activity. 
I mean, do you have any sense of the likelihood that a, a deal will be reached by tomorrow? I I have been saying the same thing for a few months now, which is that I, I, I will believe there is a deal um, when uh, the speaker and the administration announce it, when the president uh, signals sign- sign- his support, when the Senate majority leader uh, says that he is going to put it up for a vote on the floor, and where we see when we see the actual count of votes suggesting that it has the votes to pass the Senate. Right. Um, that's a high bar to clear, yes. uh, especially as we barrel toward a presidential and, and Senate and House elections. And so I would say that I remain very doubtful that they'll pull it off, but there is a possibility uh, that they could. I mean, there's, there is certainly a chance, but I would say it's a small one. And I mean, what do you make of the fact that applications for unemployment benefits, I mean, really jumped the highest, they say, since August? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, we, we there was this hope that reopening the economy would over time um, just get everyone back into the workforce quickly, that we, we sort of shut the economy down in the spring to stop the spread of the virus or slow the spread of the virus. We were going to turn it back on and people were going to be able to go back to work and it would be fine. But it, it's still not safe to go back to work for a lot of people. And there's still a lot of industries that are just very much affected by COVID. If you, for example, work in a concert venue, uh, or if you work in leisure and hospitality, or, or, or for you know, uh, an airline, you're just not going to get the demand. There's not going to be concerts. There's not going to be nearly as many people flying. There's not going to be that consumer demand for your job. And so, um, I, I don't think it's surprising that we're starting to see a tick back up in the in, in not just new claims, but all sorts of unemployment or, or sorry, all sorts of economic statistics that just make it look like for the people who've been left behind in this recovery, um, things are getting a little worse as the fall starts and, and not better. Why do some economists say that unemployment benefits are actually the most effective form of economic stimulus in times like this? Well, I, I think, well, there, there's two really big reasons in this particular recession. It's a great question. The first is that um, unemployment benefits are a way of getting money to people who really need it and who otherwise wouldn't be spending money and helping them. Ideally, you'd help them uh, just keep up their consumption, keep up being able to eat and being able to pay their rent and sort of keep that those gears of the economy moving while they look for jobs. And obviously, you really hope they can find jobs quickly, but there just aren't jobs right there right now for them. And so, so it's important to get it's, – it's an efficient way of getting money to those people. But the, but the broader thing is that it's an efficient way just to get money into the economy, that they are, they are more likely to spend money than if you just – if you send checks to every American – there are a decent number of folks who are still working, who don't need the money, who might just save the money for a rainy day or whatever. And, and that's not particularly efficient economic stimulus of what you're trying to do is, is uh, keep up consumer demand with gover- borrowed government money, which is what the, the U.S. government's been doing a lot of in, in the last several months since the start of the pandemic. So uh, it's, it's, it's an important group to target for their own well-being, but also important for the health of the economy. Because they're more likely to spend the money than save it, as you say. So let's look at the economic plans of the two candidates, Joe Biden and President Trump. And, you know, there was this town hall event last week. And 
Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden was asked, you know, if he should be raising his plan is to raise taxes on the wealthy and on corporations. And the question was whether it was wise to do so in the middle of an economy like ours, a pandemic economy, a weak economy. Um, can you talk a little bit about Biden's plan and why he believes it's OK to do this and, and that it will actually help the economy? Yeah, he said, absolutely, it's the right time. And it's interesting. I mean, just sort of in the abstract, just going back to what we just said about unemployment benefits, what government's trying to do when it uh, offers help to the economy during a recession, uh, in a lot of ways, not it's not everything it's trying to do, but a lot of what it's trying to do is just keep money flowing through the economy. And so there's this worry that if you raise taxes at a time when demand is weak, you're taking some money out of the economy that people would otherwise be spending. And um, and that that would be potentially a hit. That's what the critics uh, and certainly the president have been accusing Joe Biden of doing. Um, but but Joe Biden's not proposing to take money out of the economy. He's proposing to sort of recycle it through. And, and here's how he, he wants to tax the rich and corporations to in order to fund new spending programs on infrastructure and clean energy and healthcare and expanded social security benefits. He has a long list of, of um programs that are sort of aimed at the economy in the short, medium, and long term. And the argument that his campaign makes and that some independent uh, modelers uh, endorse is that if you tax the very rich who have, who've done very well in this pandemic, to, to be fair, um, and you tax corporations and you repurpose that money to investments in the economy that would make the economy operate more efficiently, well, then you're actually boosting growth in the economy, not taking it away. That's why Joe Biden wants to keep doing this um, from an economic standpoint. From a political standpoint, what Biden's team will tell you is um, that they believe that they need to pay for all of their medium and long-term spending, that they might do a stimulus on borrowed money like, like Donald Trump ha has done uh, in this last year, but that they think that for political reasons and for sort of soundness of economics reasons, they need to offset all of their new spending with new taxes. And the best way to do that, they think, again, for political and economic purposes, is by ta taxing the rich and, and corporations. Right. So they proposed raising taxes on Americans, making more than $400,000 a year, restoring the top tax rate for individuals from 37% to 39.6%. I mean, are they right? Are those types of moves popular politically? They are. They're very popular. And in fact, we have found... Um, you can pull the question a bunch of different ways and get different answers. People in the abstract say that they want the rich to pay more taxes, but if you ask them to pick a rate, they uh, they often guess that, that the rate on, on the rich is much lower than it actually is. Uh, but, but we've polled much more ambitious uh, proposals than uh, uh, than the former vice presidents uh, and, and found them to be popular. Um, Democrats have talked about raising top marginal income tax rates on the rich well beyond 50%. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of support in the country for things like that. People like, and they love the idea, by the way, of, of taxing wealth of billionaires. Um, our polling has consistently found even a majority of Republicans support that sort of tax, which Joe Biden hasn't proposed, but was a was cornerstone of Elizabeth Warren's proposals, Bernie Sanders' proposals. Um, so there's a lot uh, that, that you can do politically in that space in the abstract. Obviously, what, what has happened we've seen in the past is the, we, we have fights over this top marginal rate because um, 
it's difficult to get a legislative coalition for raising it. I mean, the, the rate was cut under President George W. Bush. It was raised under President Obama. It was cut under President Trump. Um, Biden is talking about getting it back to Obama era levels uh, for this, that, that marginal income tax rate. Um, it's sort of a, it's a game being played between the 45 uh, yard line and midfield uh, of tax policy, but it, it is a, a big fight every time someone tries to move the ball. Um, can you just talk quickly about what Biden plans to do to the corporate tax rate? I mentioned that he wants to raise taxes on corporations as well. Sure. There's two big things that he would do. The first is that um, uh, he would sort of re- reverse by half the the rate cut that President Trump um, signed into law in 2017. The top corporate rate used to be 35%. Trump cut it to 21%. Biden wants to raise it to 28%, which had been the proposal he and um, President Obama had had for several years when they were in the White House. Um, but the second thing he would do, which is much more complicated and, and perhaps much more uh, impactful, is he would change international taxation. Um, yes, and we can get more into that right after the break. I think you're probably hearing the music now. We're talking about the economy and election 2020 with Jim Tankersley. He's an economy and tax policy reporter for The New York Times. And we want to hear from you as well. What are your thoughts on Biden's plans for the economy? And uh, we'll be digging into Trump's plans as well and would love to hear whether or not you think Biden or Trump will be better on the economy. Interestingly, the president continues to poll quite well on the economy. You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking with Jim Tankersley, New York Times reporter on the economy and tax policy and author of The Riches of This Land. We're talking about the economy and election 2020. And we want to hear from you again, 866-733-6786, the number to call. And also you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at KQED. Dot org. And uh, Jim Tankersley, just before the break, uh, you were mentioning some of Biden's plans, I think, around foreign profits. Do you want to get into more detail about that? Just very, very quickly, because it's uh, it can get a little eye glazing, but it's really important. Um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was President Trump's sort of signature legislative accomplishment changed the way that the, Amer- uh, the United States uh, taxes uh, the profits of multinational corporations who operate all over the world. And um, it set up a new system in place for how to do that. And what Biden would essentially do is change, work within that system, but change it to make companies pay more tax on, on profits uh, earned abroad and, um, and try to incentivize them to bring more activity back to the United States uh, with some punishments for, for companies that don't. And so, um, and some enticements for companies that do uh, bring back product production. So um, it's an effort to try to use the tax code both to get more money from corporations, but also to try to get them to put more jobs in the United States. Well, let me go to caller David in Martinez. Hi, David. Join us. Hi. So I was wondering if there's any way the Biden plan can close enough loopholes to actually make taxing the wealthy corporations effective. Uh, David, thank you. Jim Tangersley, in terms of trying to address tax loopholes? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I, I certainly have seen a lot of models that suggest that it will raise the effective tax rate on on the wealthy uh, and on corporations. Um, you know, for example, just going back to the international taxation, it, it definitely would make it um, harder for companies to pay a low rate on taxes uh, earned abroad by switching how profits earned abroad are calculated. It's it's complicated, but it, it really would be. It's a thing that um, a lot of liberal economists have been calling for for a while, and that um and that uh, you know the 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 president's uh, tax writers chose not to do in part because they thought that it would um, push companies to um uh, move their operations overseas. But uh, so I think that's a that's part of it. Another thing though that that Biden does that absolutely would raise the um, tax rate on uh, workers and small business owners who are, are high earners is that he would um, lift the cap on Social Security payroll taxes. Right now, it's only up to a certain wage that you are, are taxed for your Social Security. Um, Biden would lift that cap in order to raise more money for Social Security and expand benefits in the program, and that would absolutely subject. Uh, high earners to uh, sort of a larger effective tax rate. Jim Tangersley, I mean, what's Trump's plan comparatively, uh, I guess, around taxes, since that's the topic right now? It's been a little bit hard to to find. I mean, I know he's talked about a tax cut for the middle class and various things like that. I mean, where is he? It is... Um difficult to discern the details of the president's tax plan because he has not put them out. I mean, Trump in 2016 had one of the least detailed policy agendas that I've seen in my career as a reporter covering politicians and policy. And his 2016 plan was far more detailed than his 2020 plan. He has talked about a variety of things that he'd like to do, um, but he has sort of left people to guess exactly what he would do. And, and has instead chosen to sort of focus more on the results that he says he's achieved with the policies he's put in place. I think we know a few things. One is that he says he would try to cut middle-class taxes. Um, he said that before the 2018 elections, uh, promised a plan, it never appeared. And then after the elections, the idea sort of went away. Now he says he has it again. We've heard ideas being kicked around, but he probably would search for some sort of tax cut like that where he'd be reelected and, and we would see what it looked like uh, when he proposed it. But um, probably, certainly he would seek to make permanent a bunch of the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that uh, it was left temporary. Uh, by, by the nature of the Senate rules that were required to pass the law without any Democrats. So uh, I think that sort of as a baseline scenario, we would assume that he would work to do that and then maybe add some new ideas on top of it. He does love the idea of cutting payroll taxes. He has said it a, a bunch during the pandemic. He has pushed for it. He has found zero appetite for it in Congress among mm -hmm. Democrats or Republicans. But that does seem to be sort of a favorite go-to policy of his. He's also threatened to impose tariffs on companies that go abroad. I mean, where is that at? I, I, we've, again, we don't have formal <laughs> uh, formal legislative. We don't even have sort of a, the, the skeletons of an outline on how that would work. Um, but he does. He, he does seem to want to do more to encourage Buy America. He, his campaign has announced some Buy America ideas. He wants to do more to punish companies that move jobs abroad, um, like, like you said, with tariffs on goods sold back. Um, it's not exactly certain what that would look like. Uh, I mean, it, it is sort of just a step back for a second, a wild statement upon um, this, the nature of this campaign and just everything going on in America today that we really haven't had much of a debate about this. Uh, 
Joe Biden has a lot of detailed plans. We've talked about a few of them a little bit. Um, the president has very few detailed plans, and that gets talked about almost not at all. So it, 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 obviously, in a time of the national crisis, um, small details are going to be less important. But it is still striking compared to the level of policy scrutiny in past campaigns, just how little we've had this time. Yes. Well, this listener writes, could Jim Tankersley talk about the recent news that the federal deficit has reached $3.1 trillion and that the U.S. debt is now more than $21 trillion? These feel like staggering numbers. Should we be worried? They are staggering numbers. It's true. I mean, they are large numbers that $3.1 trillion is uh, the, you know, the largest uh, dollar figure deficit we've ever had in this country. Um but I don't think it's interesting. We went through this entire time uh, after the 2008 financial crisis when economists, particularly on the right, were really worried about deficits. If we got too much debt um, as a country, then we risked a, a big spiraling uh, bad case scenario where the economy could be in ruins because of just sort of the, um, the financial crisis that that could trigger. You don't hear that kind of warning as much now, in part because that didn't happen when we from deficits and debt uh, after the 2008 crisis. So short term, most economists I talk to, and even the people in Washington whose job it is to worry about the debt, they are not worried about the deficit short term. If anything, they're asking Congress to, to borrow more money to do another stimulus bill to keep the economy from cratering next year. Um, but long term, there are a lot of people in Washington who still worry about debt and deficits and, and uh, worry about the sort of um, mismatch right now between how much Washington is, is scheduled to bring in in taxes and how much it's, it's scheduled to pay out in, uh, in, in government spending over the long term. And they do worry that we will hit that point at some point down the road when the debt becomes unsustainable, especially if interest rates were to rise in the future, which right now, of course, they're very low. Well, let me go to caller Allison in Oakland. Hi, Allison. Hi there. Um, I just am appreciating this show so much. Thank you for laying it out so clearly. Um, I was actually curious about who we're borrowing from all, all the debt. Oh, that's El great, thank you. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's another great question. Right now, actually, a lot of, a lot of it's being bought by the Federal Reserve. Um, it is helping to, to finance this debt, but through you know, programs of bond buying. Um, so I think that that's something that people worry about a lot is sort of who holds our debt. And, and in this case, it, it is oddly sort of a different branch of the U.S. government that's doing a lot of the bond buying to finance this borrowing. Allison, thanks for the question. Another question from Rob comes in. Rob writes, was the effect of the Trump tax cuts primarily a short-term benefit with long-term costs to the economy, as argued at the time? Also, what was the trajectory of the Obama economy if Trump had done nothing? I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because, of course, when he first talked about his sort of juicing of the economy, causing it to grow, you know, more than 4% or so, right? But, but that, of course, hasn't been the case. And there is this question of how strong the economy was anyway before he did it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I have a whole chapter on this in my book because um, I think it's a, one of the great uh, – uh, political branding campaigns uh, of my lifetime is Donald Trump's ability to sell what is um, essentially a, a normal um, 21st century uh, second term president, like post-recession presidential performance uh, as something extraordinary. And, and so what I mean by that is um, 
both President Bush and President Obama basically inherited recessions uh, when they came into office, took a while to, to, to dig out of them. And then in their second terms, they had, um, okay, not great economic growth and income growth. Um, President Trump didn't have a recession at the start. So if we look at the first three years of his uh, presidency, they're very comparable to the last four years of Obama, the last four years of Bush. And in a lot of ways, they're indistinguishable. Growth's about the same and uh, income growth's about the same. But the, the big difference is Trump starts in this really um, low unemployment place. And that's really helpful, it turns out, for generating income growth and for, um, and for you know, uh, uh, getting unemployment even lower. He can claim unemployment hit record lows on his watch, which is true, because he started with very low unemployment. And um, what, what the tax cuts did to, to, the, to the question uh, was pour a bunch of fiscal stimulus uh, borrowed money basically into an already pretty good economy. Uh, and that made it grow even faster for a little while, especially when coupled with the federal reserve, keeping interest rates near historical lows for much of that time. And so Trump sort of had these great tailwinds from fiscal and monetary policy. And still, even then, uh, only had one year of 3% growth, and he had promised 4, 5, 6% growth and this like transformational effect on the economy, uh, which, which we haven't seen. Um, and that was all true even before the, uh, the COVID crisis hit, and the economy, of course, has, has suffered a, a deep recession since then and is now climbing out. I mean, Jim Tankersley, you mentioned branding, and I wonder if you think that plays a big part in the fact that, that Trump does continue to enjoy confidence, I think, among the electorate about his abilities to handle the economy. Oh, he has a very powerful economic brand. And I think it is um, when you talk to people and pollsters and to, and to just folks who support the president about it, or even folks who don't support him, but like his handling of the economy, I think it's a mixture of um, people do think fondly of those first three years and unemployment getting very low and, and income growth starting to rise. Um, but also they think of Trump very very much as this successful businessman they saw on TV. And that is a that is a very powerful brand. And as president, he has not hesitated at all to take credit um, for, you know, 150% of the performance of the economy that was actually happening on his watch. And uh, I think that that's worked. He has been, uh, you know, he can be all over the map on messaging on lots of issues. But whenever he talks about the economy, he talks about how great it is and how great he's he's made it. I mean, to the point where, Earlier this year, he was bragging about the fastest months of job growth in American history and just totally ignoring the fact that they have followed, you know, the fastest month of, of job loss in, in American history. So um, he's really, uh, I think, a very powerful storyteller on the economy and that that has translated to it is easily his best um, domestic policy issue uh, among independents, among Democrats, and then sort of in the electorate overall. And again, if listeners want to join the conversation, tell us how do you what are your questions about uh, Joe Biden or President Trump's plans for the economy or I guess performance so far on the economy? What are the policies related to the economy that are most important to you? COVID relief taxes. How important of an issue is the economy for you in this upcoming election? Again, 866-733-6786 is the number. 
Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum is how you can reach us there or email us at forum at kqed.org. And Lex writes, can the guest comment on how the Republican tax cuts both impact the tools at the government's disposal to mitigate the impacts of COVID-19 in the short term and the declining economy more broadly over the medium term? Um, I have a related question, but, but first, what are your thoughts on what Lex is asking here? Well, I don't. I don't actually think there was this fear uh, when when you pass a deficit finance tax cut, which which these were these tax tax cuts did not have not paid for themselves. Um, there's a fear when you add to deficits that you will remove the quote space that policymakers want, might need to combat a recession. Basically, the idea that oh, we spent all this money on tax cuts, we don't have any more money, and that hasn't turned out to be true. Um, Congress passed. You know, it's like something like three trillion dollars in stimulus uh, so far, and uh, that's been help for small businesses and help for the unemployed and, and help for large companies. Um, it, you know, if anything, it, it wasn't enough, but it, it was it was a lot more than a lot of countries did, and a lot more than I think um, many observers thought possible. So I, I would say, in the short term, it, it they have not hamstrung uh, the economy. I, I think the response to the recession in the medium to longer term uh, to the degree that they have added to this mounting pile of debt and to the degree to which the political um, calculations around deficits are going to shift again. The fact that we have extra debt because of the tax cuts and the fact that we are raising less money to pay for government spending um, could be difficult. And that I think is partly why, you know, Joe Biden wants to reverse um, parts of those tax cuts, but you know, to be clear, he's not going to reverse all of them. So, so he's going to put, even if he got everything he wanted overnight, it would still leave the U.S. with, a, a, you know, slightly higher deficits than they would have if, if the uh, the tax cuts had not come into law. And, you know, I think that that is going to be part of the political calculation, at least moving forward about, you know, what Washington can do policy-wise in the years to come. Well, Todd writes, with an economy so dependent on the service sector, why has there not been a focus on addressing COVID-19 spread and control as the means to fix the economy? Was this just incompetence or did the administration think they could starve people into working through the pandemic? I mean, it's an interesting question. Jim Tankersley, where do economists stand on whether our economic recovery depends on getting the virus under control, getting that virus under control through a national testing strategy, for example, which seems to be the big sticking point in the stimulus talks right now. Can you explain? Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, when people ask me, what's, what's the number one policy you would do to, to help like boost the American middle class over time, I tell them the first thing you have to do is get the virus under control. So much of what we're seeing in our economy right now is is not the result of government lockdowns. It's not the result of people wanting to go to work but not being able to because the government's telling them they can't. It's the result of the economy has been changed by this pandemic, and that has put a lot of people and out of work in a lot of industries sort of on ice. Um, and that's not just you know, the workers I talked about earlier, like if you work for an airline, there's fewer flights. It's also, you know, people whose children are in are in school, but virtually and not going to school. A lot of women in particular um, are struggling to be able to go to work if they can't find childcare uh, during the day for that. And so it's it's impacting the, the size of the labor force, who can work, who can earn money. Um, getting that pandemic under, getting the pandemic under control uh, absolutely is key. And, and, and there are some very smart economists advocating a big national testing strategy as part of that. They've been advocating it for a long time. There's public health health officials saying we need, you know, a very um, 
multifaceted approach to this. Uh, but you, what you really, uh, the bottom line is you need to give people the confidence that they can go out and do their daily lives. Um, and, and, you know, be safe when, when, if they resumed normal economic activity. And, and most Americans in the polls show don't feel that way right now, at least a majority of Americans. Um, the administration has gone back and forth on how it handles this. But I, I would say, based on interviews that I've done even in recent days with White House officials, the prevailing view right now is that what's holding Americans back is fear of the virus, not the virus itself. Um, when I was talking to Scott Atlas, who's one of the, the president's big uh, science advisors last week on this, he was saying people, you know, the mortality rate is low for people under the age of 70 and people need to just get back out there and we, we don't need more testing. We need people to get back to work. And so that has not always been, I think, the, the direct uh, policy of the administration, but it certainly seems to be the policy now, even as we see this next wave of infections really uh, flaring up, particularly across the upper Midwest. Yes, there has been such a, such resistance to more widespread testing. And as you mentioned, Dr. Scott Atlas is a White House coronavirus advisor who is a radiologist, does not even have a background in infectious disease. Uh, so very interesting to try to tease out the White House response on coronavirus. We'll have more with Jim Tankersley of the New York Times. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the economy and election 2020 with Jim Tankersley, economy and tax policy reporter for the New York Times and author of the new book, The Riches of This Land. And you, our listeners, are with us. And let me go to our phone calls, Brandy and Benicia. Hi, Brandy. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Thank you. Um, and thank you guys again for this discussion. I kind of had a comment, and I just wanted um, to kind of hear the opinion from your guests about it in terms of the taxes. Uh, on the middle class, uh, because he mentioned that Biden's plan, uh, plans to tax the middle class uh, for income earners over 400000 And I just wanted him to kind of speak to um, what he's learned about kind of the middle class uh, resistance to that, because um, in California, for instance, it's extremely expensive uh, to live here. The cost of living is very high. And if you're making 400000 for a family, you're by no means wealthy. Um, and a lot of those cases are dual professional homes where they have not only a high cost of living, but a high student debt. Uh, and then a lot of these families don't uh, receive the benefit of a lot of the sub subsidies for uh, education for their kids, for programs for their kids. Um, and I think that's a little bit of the resistance um, with the taxes in the middle class. Uh, you're you're paying out a lot, but you're not receiving much. And I, I just wanted to kind of hear the comments on that. Brandy, thank you. So Jim Tankersley, a little more detail on this $400,000 if you make more than $400,000 a year in terms of Biden's plan. Yeah, I, I appreciate the caller's question. And actually, I've heard, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of that. I, I think our audience at, at the Times includes uh, a number of, of readers in, in California, in New York, in New Jersey, and in, in sort of higher cost, higher tax states who certainly don't feel wealthy when they earn hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, statistically speaking, even with cost of living adjustments, um, those, uh, those people are, are among the highest earners in America. Uh, but they are, 
they are certainly more squeezed by cost of living uh, than, than they would be if they lived in Des Moines or, or in, you know, even in lower cost uh, cities in California, like in the Central Valley. Um, but I, I think that one of the things that Joe Biden tried to wrestle with actually with this plan was, was the, the um, contradictions of, of that, that complaint uh, and also the sort of uh, desire among Democrats to raise a lot of, of tax revenue. Um, many of Biden's opponents in the primary set a much lower threshold. I mean, $400,000 is, I think, about like the top 5% of income earners nationwide, if you're looking at the nationwide statistics. And, and Biden is, is basically putting that entire group into the middle class um, setting, whereas uh, others um, set the threshold much lower. So um, I think that that's going to be a big issue for him in trying to sell these tax increases, particularly if Democrats control the Senate very narrowly, he'll have to make the case um, to, you know, swing voting Democratic senators like uh, Kristen Sinema of, uh, of Arizona, who probably has some constituents who fall into the caller's complaint group. And, and he's going to have to make the case that, hey, this is not um, a tax increase that's going to hurt them. So uh, we'll see. The politics of it tend to be that taxing the rich is popular, but who is rich is a really big argument. And, um, and 400,000 was a kind of compromise pick that Biden made between um, the people in the, on the coast in particular who feel squeezed by cost of living and by sort of a more, you know, what, what the numbers tell us actually is the median income of Americans in this country, the middle class, which is, you know, well under $100,000 a year. Right. And as you say, in part also because he really has put out a pretty aggressive spending plan and he needs that revenue. Uh, Joel tweets, what about student loans? I used a fair amount of my student loan money consolidating on home renovations, etc. Could these borrowers be given a pass on the taxpayer's dime? Can you talk a little bit about um, what Biden's plan is with regard to uh, student loans, also his plans around college tuition costs generally, um, as we start to work our way into maybe talking more about some of his big plans for spending, or especially around healthcare and climate change as well? Yeah, so he has, um, he has a sort of a plan to, you know, he, he looks at education beyond just four-year schools. Um, and I think that's important for people to remember is that a lot of student debt in this country is not just um, four-year colleges. Um, but he is you know, he's trying to, he has a loan forgiveness plan. Uh, he has a plan to make uh, a college basically uh, affordable for people going to at least up to a two-year uh, plan. Um, you know, he sees this as a um, big part of people building their way into the middle class. And, and education certainly has been uh, part of the stairway to the middle class over the last 30 years. It's been um, necessary, but not sufficient for a lot of people to get into the middle class and student debt is of course the the flip side of that it is the 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 thing that borrowing that costs that a lot of americans have to encourage just to give them some of the shot at um uh, many middle class jobs but but he's trying to look at education more than that he's trying to look at uh, skills training more than that and uh and sort of ask are there ways jim tankersley your degree Oh, Hello? I, I think we lost you there just for a quick second, but I think we understood oh, what you sorry were. Sorry about that. Am I back? Yeah, you are back. And uh, I, I do want to ask you if you could share a little bit about his plans related to health care. I mean, certainly some uh, conservative-leaning entities have, have 
been concerned about his plans to expand the Affordable Care Act and various other things related to health care. Yeah. So, so Joe Biden um, does not go, you know, uh, full Medicare for all, like a lot of uh, Democratic rivals would have in the primaries. That was sort of a, a huge um, part of their fight in the primaries. And it, but he does expand the Affordable Care Act. He, he tries to use it to give far more people health insurance and to make health insurance more affordable for, for people uh, who already have it. And um, he, the expansion of those subsidies have drawn um, through the ACA have drawn the criticism of some former economists for President Trump, uh, Kevin Hassett, Casey Mulligan. Um, Mulligan is a University of Chicago economist who has written a ton about uh, the ACA hurting job growth over time. And basically their argument is that by giving people certain subsidies, uh, Biden, that, that would be very generous up to a, a certain amount of income. Biden is going to discourage people from earning more money than that because they don't want to phase out of the subsidies for health care. And so they say that that would discourage work. It's sort of a classic wonky economist argument, but it, it all kind of comes back to this question of the trade-offs of if, if, you, if one reason you think that people go to work is because they, they need health insurance and the only way, you know, the easiest way in America to get it is through your job. Um, then by making it easier for them to get health insurance, they might work less. And I, I think that's, it's an open question whether you think that that's a, a net negative for the economy or not, that the people who are so desperate for health care have to work more just to get it. Um, but I think that, that the there will be a, a big fight over health care because there's always a big fight over health care. And, um, and that Joe Biden's plan is going to try again, like so much of his economic program to walk that line between um, conservative complaints that he's going to expand government so much that it ruins the economy and um, liberal complaints that it's not going far enough, that he's not going to be covering enough people, not leveraging the government's um, ability uh, to, to control prices and costs of, of health care more. Uh, it, it will be you know, assuredly one of the big fights of his presidency if he wins. On Trump's side, I mean, we know that he's tried to win the Affordable Care Act. We know that he's done things around putting work requirements on Medicaid recipients. He did say that he was working on trying to cover, trying to get health insurers to cover pre-existing conditions. Um, but has there been any movement on that? Um, <laughs> no. I mean that he's the president has has had a lot of um, sound and fury on health coverage. He keeps promising a big, beautiful plan to replace the Affordable Care Act and protect people with uh, pre-existing conditions and make everything cheaper. It keeps not showing up, and he's done some things. He's issued some executive orders. Um, I'm not a health policy reporter, and so I'm not in, in the weeds of that as much as my uh, ACE colleagues are, but their general read on it is that those executive orders haven't really done much. And um, look, he tried really hard. It was his first big legislative attempt was to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And, and, and it's, it's important to remember, not only did they fail to repeal it, his party could never agree on a replacement plan, and they're still there. So... I think it would be an open question what the president would do if reelected on health care. Well, let me go to caller Tim in Roseville. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for the show. Um, I have a, a fairly basic question. I'm, I'm aware of what Trump has done with uh, the tax cuts, and he's stepping out of the way and trying to loosen rules for regulations on the environment as well as uh, drugs. But what has he actually done 
to improve the economy himself? What what things has he put out there that has changed the economy other than businesses feeling like, well, this guy's not going to step in our way so we can do whatever we want? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I do think um, it's hard to quantify the economic benefits of deregulation like the president has done, but there you can see it in business sentiment. Businesses have been generally happier uh, with him in the White House than they were with President Obama. I hear a lot from business uh, you know, leaders like, you know, we, we don't, we don't feel like we're under attack all the time. Now on the flip side, they also feel like a lot of policy is very uncertain, which they don't like. They have not, business leaders in general don't like his immigration policy and don't like his trade policies, especially from big businesses. But um, what we see with, uh, with the things that the president's actually done, I mean, I think the, the very big things that he can point to for the economy is that he's been able to um, run uh, basically large budget deficits over the last few years, um, both before the pandemic to, to keep dumping fuel on the economic expansion uh, with tax cuts and with spending increases, especially military spending increases. And then now with these with the stimulus uh, bills that passed in the spring, um, and a lot of economists sort of continue or consider uh, you know, what Trump's done to be kind of some classic uh, you know, Keynesian stimulus in, in the last uh, nine months, and that that has been helpful and helped the United States rebound faster than it um, than it would have otherwise. We're talking with Jim Tankersley, New York Times reporter on the economy and tax policy. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Erica tweets, a 90% tax rate helped pull us out of the Great Depression and coincided with massive economic growth throughout the 1950s. Why not bring it back and use it to finance a Green New Deal? Uh, Erica's tweet is reminding me a little bit of your book, just because you do focus on the post-World War II period um, yeah. and, and make some recommendations for what we should bring back or what we should do to try to to basically bring the country back, as you say uh, in your book. Can you talk a little bit about that and react to, to Erica's uh, idea? I would love to. I mean, there's there is certainly um, a, a narrative out there that I think a lot of progressives feel like, which is a sort of, we had very high tax rates after World War II. We also had a very strong middle class. Um, one must be driving the other. And um, I just want to sort of set that narrative aside right now, along with a lot of other narratives we hear about what, what built the middle class and talk about what the research shows us actually was a crucial driver after World War II of the growth of the middle class, which was that before World War II and, and really up until in the middle of that expansion afterwards, um, we just had enormous barriers to entry in the economy to anyone who wasn't a white man. Um, in, in 1960, 95% of doctors and lawyers in America are white men. And, um, and that's really economically in, inefficient. But first during the war, when women go to work in droves to help power the country while, while men are off fighting the war. And then in the immediate aftermath, when um, women enter the, the labor force, they stick around or they, they enter again um, uh, in, in different ways. And then, and then opportunity begins to open up for black men to do jobs that they were totally barred from doing before the war. Suddenly in the civil rights era, through the hard work of civil rights, we fling open, not all the way, by the way, but we fling open gates of opportunity. And that flood of women uh, of all races and, and black men in particular, through those gates of opportunity is what creates a much more productive economy and a, and a much stronger middle class. It is th those workers investing in women, opening up opportunities for women and, and for workers of color, 
um, is massively helpful. And, and economic research shows that it's responsible for like 40% of all of our economic growth per worker since 1960. That is the like secret sauce. And I think it is, it just so happens to be um, the sauce that we could recreate most easily in our economy right now. We have barriers to advancement for women, barriers to advancement for uh, Americans of color, whether it's overt discrimination or um, you know, path dependence in companies or in universities or in school systems that, that hold back non-white guys in the economy. And if we could re-dedicate um, ourselves to tearing down those impediments and helping those workers get ahead again, um, we could have that same sort of productivity boom and growth boom that pulls all workers ahead, not just women and, and men of color, but white men too, and, and delivers the kind of middle class uh, that we saw after the war. And what will be the major job centers? I mean, where will, what kind of work should we be focused on? Is it clean energy, for example, which is something that, that comes up a lot, that that's the industry? Where I, I frustratingly don't have a great answer for you on that. I, I, I can't. Um, I mean, I think clean energy is going to be important. I think healthcare is going to be really important. I think anything where we're solving the big human problems of our time are going to be really important. But, but what I can tell you uh, is that I, I have a really strong confidence based on the data that the people who create the jobs of the future are going to be those undervalued workers right now. Women in particular, I mean, uh, in Silicon Valley are just, uh, they account for a, a horribly small share of venture capital funding received, they should be getting much more. They should be empowered to start companies. We should have policy that makes it easier and, and better for them. Uh, and I think that they will um, you know, put their talents to use in ways they haven't been allowed to before and find ways to employ American workers at living wages to solve big problems and create jobs of the future, whether it's in clean energy or uh, any number of high tech, any number of other industries we're not even thinking of right now that could use that kind of infusion of brain power. Hmm. Michael in San Pablo, join us. Hi, Michael. Hi, I want to know about your estimates of the long-term ramifications of, well, I'll read about all these different horrible things that happen the airlines and the businesses and the people out of work, but something aggregate seems to portend an inevitable presence. And, you know, the day the stock market crashed in 29, it didn't just turn out we're in a depression. A series of things cascaded. What what are our inevitable things that I don't see, but they're coming? Mm. Uh, Michael, thanks. Uh, Jim Tangersley, it's kind of a, a broad, forward-looking question, I think, right? I know it's hard to... Yeah, I, 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 uh, predict, if, I was, but... if I could predict that, I, <laughs> I uh, would be trading stocks right now. Um, I, I will tell you this, though. The things that worry me most, like long, long term about the United States is that um, if we don't uh, uh, find a way to um, get more workers, we're not going to be able to sustain the sort of economic growth that we have now. And our birth rate trends are not going to get us there. So so President Trump's economic rest uh, immigration restrictions, for example, um, a lot of economists are very worried about the long run ramifications of, of keeping those restrictions in place. Um, I think shorter term, the thing I worry most about is that um, 
the damage that can accrue to workers from a recession becomes self-sustaining. So if you're out of work for 10 months, if you're out of work for a year, if you're out of work for two years, it can be much harder for you to find a job, to get hired, to get slotted back in, to make up the earnings you lost. And, and you do not want sort of another generation of workers with permanent damage like we, like we ha- saw from 2008. It took a long time just to get some of those workers back anywhere close to whole. And so short run, I worry about that. And I worry about the businesses that were healthy and through no fault of their own are going to close. And that, you know, we could see massive waves of bigger businesses, corporate consolidation coming in and replacing those dynamic smaller businesses in ways that could also be detrimental to growth. Well, Jim Tankersley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so, so much for having me. And congratulations again on the book, The Riches of This Land, which tells a story of after World War II, unsung Americans built the strongest middle class in human history and the powerful men who tore it apart. Thanks also to our listeners for their questions and comments and to Jameson Weiss for producing this segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.